Hello and welcome to Grace Church Vienna. Today, Hans-Georg Koprich continues last week's sermon in chapter 23 of Acts, where we see how Paul was brought before the council and what mistake he made during the time. We will also learn of what the Lord told him in prison and how the Romans helped to protect Paul from people who were plotting against him. So join us today to learn more about the grace and power of God and how our relationship to God should be like. So this is Hans-Georg. Today we'll continue our series through the book of Acts. I'm glad that Hans Georg is with us again. And um, today we're in Acts chapter 23. Um, so we're kind of towards the end actually now. <laughs> it means so much um, to us all to get together and uh, share and get encouraged. Um, well, we are sailing kind of through our lives and uh, many a times there are things in our lives uh, that just happen. And we have a saying in German that says, uh, Ein Unglück kommt selten allein. That means, for those that may listen to us all around the globe and those that are not masters, have a German uh, it's And I guess all cultures have a, a similar kind of saying that if a, a disaster or an accident happens, it's not just one. There are several. It's a, sometimes it's a whole line of, of accidents, disasters that we look at and we're kind of flabbergasted and we don't know what's happening uh, all around us. And um, as we look into the story of Paul's adventures, uh, we can see that. And this is why we have the headline today, When Pressure Mounts. You know, a kind of a, a mounting up of uh, things that happen around Paul and those that were uh, with him. And um, certainly in my own life, when disasters have happened, it's not a, a singled-out disaster, but there is a whole string of disasters that come at the same time. And I guess... You can identify with that, uh, and it may have happened, and you think about situations in your own life that uh, you appreciate what I'm saying. It's not just one disaster at a time, a whole string of. And even in his exemplary life, Paul sometimes shows a sign of stress. You've heard it, yes? Paul, the almighty apostle. Really? He experienced stress? Never! Oh, yes. Stress came. 
And with that, pressure mounts. To understand Paul's state of mind, let us recall some recent troubles. And we have mentioned them in the previous services, and you can listen to them um, if uh, if you have internet, you can listen to them in our series of of acts. Um, a whole a mountain of troubles, and as we read last Sunday in Acts twenty one twenty seven to thirty two, so far this very week he has been beaten by a mob. And Acts 21.33 tells us that uh, he was bound in chains. Can you imagine a human that is confronted with this kind of big mountain of troubles? As we read in Acts 22, um, 1-22, he had his death demanded by a group of zealous Jews and come within a hair's breadth of being scorched as we read in Acts 22, 23 to 29. And we see what religion does in our lives. Yes, it is true. Religion, and that's with all cultures all around the globe, religion is in the center of every culture. So when you, when you touch a certain thing in religion, because it's kind of very special, it's kind of untouchable, but if you touch it, an explosion may occur. And it occurred in Paul's life because religion is in the very center of every culture. You know, somebody has compared it culture with uh, an onion. You know, there are layers, lots of layers in the center uh, of culture. You can see religion where you explain the how and where and where we explain our destiny. And that's exactly what religion does, actually. Where do we come from? You know, these important questions of life. Where do we come from? Who are we but our identity and our destiny? These are just but three questions of Religion that try, every religion, wherever you go, every religion tries to explain, give grounds. Uh, some of them give hope uh, and so on. That's in the center of culture. And if you go to the very center, well, it's very sensitive, very sensitive. And we see that happening in, in many Many countries, especially when many religions uh, live uh, together, some of them, they are very peaceful, but many a times, you know, the war is ready to be stirred up and uh, fights uh, are occurring 
uh, and so on. So now Paul was wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews. The Roman commander in charge of Paul, we read about him in Acts 22.30, he released him and ordered the chief priest and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. What an incredible, cruel week that was. Mounting up and and. We appreciate Paul in his situation because that's happening ever so often in, also in our lives. And then next, having had little sleep, food, and I appreciate that because you asked Margaret if I haven't uh, eaten for a while and my stomach is empty, oh, sorry, I think um, you you may experience a different hence than now. You know, I may become a wolf um, and no longer be a sheep. Um, empty stomach. No physical care. He stands weary and bruised before the highest Jewish court the Sanhedrin. Throughout Acts, Dr. Luke refers to the Sanhedrin simply as the council. So Paul is standing before the council. And uh, let's give it a description. Who is that Sanhedrin or the council. Paul had been a member, actually, so he was an insider. He knew what's, what was happening there. Nobody would need to tell him about the relationships and things that are going about in the Sanhedrin. He knew it exactly because he was in the very center of it. I want to remind you, he was acquainted he knew everything about what was happening in the council. Paul had been a member of this strict, rigorous, and harsh judicial body in his early years, and he knew all the details about it. And we read in Acts 26, we mentioned that several times how important it is to present people with our personal testimony. So three times we read again and again and again Paul's personal testimony. And I would like to encourage you to share your testimony because as we said last time, um, you can't say anything against it because that's your personal experience. This is your encounter with the living God. So here again in Acts 26, um, we hear about Paul, Acts 26.10. That is just what I did in Jerusalem. One of the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast 
my woad against them. Thus was the habit of Paul sitting in the Sanhedrin. And thus was the situation. He faced now himself standing in front of the Sanhedrin. Only a member of the Sanhedrin was allowed actually to cast a vote. The Sanhedrin was made up of about 70 men, the, including the high priest, the very center of religion. Uh, Paul probably looked in their eyes kind of familiar. Yes, it was a kind of many years ago and recognized still many of these, sorry to call them guys, I mean, honorable people from his, he knew these honorable people from his days in the council. He also knew that two main factions divided the council. That was first the Pharisees and whom he had himself belonged, but also the Sadducees, the men in his old main party were very legalistic. They knew the law by heart, all the laws. And the Pharisees were the kind of, if we put it on a kind of a British level, the Puritans of their days. They kept it, the law, uh, to the very point. These Pharisees also viewed the oral traditions as highly as the written law and believed in angels. They believed in spirits and the bodily resurrection of the dead. Kind of, you know, religion, very much religion, uh, you know, the spirits, kind of as we say um, in the study of religions, uh, very animistic, you know, because anima means soul, um, and in every religion they want to talk about these unseen things. Um, and the animism, the uh, big religion that uh, covers all the world, is they call it um, incomparable religion studies. They call it the mother of religion. It's animism. Because they tr really, they start to try and explain uh, about spirits, angels, uh, bodily resurrection. So the Pharisees were really at the center. And then, of course, there were the Sadducees on the other hand. Um, they had no room for oral traditions and were rationalists. They, you know, they had a, their brain was everything. Rejecting the, the supernatural altogether, including the hope of a resurrection. So these parties were in the Sanhedrin. One talking about things they could not see, and the others, they were just brain, 
both factions clung tightly to their traditions. And of course, together to their power. Let us watch how Paul handles himself when he has the chance to speak in person to this group. And uh, we see a dialogue, a dialogue among men. We can imagine Paul exhausted. We can imagine Paul in pain, struggling to be cool. As he stands alone, there wasn't there, nope, there was nobody next to him who could support him, could talk to him, strengthen and encourage him, nobody. Struggling to keep cool, he stands alone before the antagonist man, his face and in fearance of his bold and obtrusive opening statement, however, betray his feelings. Acts 23, 1 says, Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. He was saying this as I would have done it, possibly in a very sarcastic way. And people talk behind my back. You know, I'm very sarcastic at times. I apologize. And if you can bear with me, please bear with me. It's just a, a kind of a, a weak feature of Hans's personality. I'm sometimes very sarcastic. So I, I totally identify with Paul in his situation. He was saying this as I would say, I'm not guilty. And you, he was pointing fingers. He may not have done it with his fingers actually, but it was like a bombshell just jumping before and being in front of these um, very big religious guys. I'm not guilty and you are wrong in judging me. Listening to one of their previous members, again, he was part of them and they may have, some of them at least may have remembered that, that he was part of them. Listening to one of their previous members, the self-righteous high priest, of course, took this as an, as an insult. And as we read in uh, 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 Acts 23.2, at this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on his mouth. Wow. Can you imagine what happened? He hardly opened his mouth. Boom! He got it back. Now that wasn't polite, was it? That did it. Empty stomach, bruised. Can you imagine? I can. I mean, 
Nobody has beaten me up so far. As a child, of course, I got some smacks of my uh, parents. But as an adult, um, and I hope as you bear with me, you don't smack me afterwards. After this horrible week, that slap was all the abuse Paul could take. That was it. Controlling himself no longer, he suddenly pours out a boiling hot stream of contempt directly to his enemy. Acts 23.3 says, God, you know, he puts up His heart is boiling. Kind of hatred comes out. And oftentimes, if you see yourself, what do you do against your personal enemies? You tell them, God will kill you. God is going to strike you. That's what we read here. And we appreciate that's what we oftentimes do. And I've heard many prayers. God, kill him. God is going to strike <coughs> you, you whitewashed wall. And do you sit to dry me according to the law and in violation of the law, order me to be struck. Wow. The oral tradition, the, uh, the high priest was violating was this. He who strikes the cheek of an Israel, Israelite strikes as it were the glory of God. Compare this. <clears throat> With Matthew 23, um, 27, uh, Jesus also did something similar. Of course, he <coughs> only was beating up uh, people in, uh, in the temple. But here, Paul, uh, Jesus says, Woe to you, <coughs> teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones and the dead and everything unclean. Wow. He just hit them bluntly. Now, in effect, Paul calls the judge a stinking hypocrite. Can you imagine what he did? Thank you. Thank you. He calls him a stinking hypocrite. Wow. Would you dare to say that to kind of honorable people? You uh, come uh, to the Austrian chancellor and you kind of heat it up in your heart um, and you stand before him. You know, you do not acknowledge that he is the Austrian chancellor and you just hit him in the face. That exactly happened here. An honorable, the high priest. He was told up, told off. You're stinking hypocrites, speaking more out of spite than righteousness, righteous outrage. Indeed, he realizes now. Paul realizes that there has been 
he has made something wrong. He realizes his heart he did mistakes when he responded to some bystanders. He tells them in Acts 23, 3, so he realizes something really went wrong in his emotions. And Paul said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was High priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So he, you know, kind of bluntly and suddenly, he became aware, you know, things, you know, went out of rule, you know, everything went out of order, everything. How could Paul not have known that the object of his tyrant was the high priest? Now, as I got ready for this sermon, of course, I looked also, um, you know, how others explain that. And I know I became aware of a, of a kind of a human fact. Then whenever things like that happen, we try to make it soft, try to explain it away. Have you ever done that? You know, oh yes, I've done wrong, but do you know that? I know. You know, to make it soft or to make a kind of excuse. And, you know, all these uh, theologians uh, I read, you know, they came up with an excuse. Of course, we know in Galatians, Paul is talking about his sight. He's even talking about writing big letters in Galatians 5 and 6. You know, can you see I'm writing in big letters? Uh, you know, I can hardly see what I'm writing. This is why, you know, his, uh, you know some of the theologians, they tell me that he <clears throat> kind of, his sight wasn't a good one. Well, it may have been. I'm not going against it. But I'm intrigued, you know, that the situation as it was, may, people may try to soften. It was a blow. It was an incredible blow. Perhaps Paul did not know Ananias personally another excuse. I mean, he knew where he was standing, my dear brother and sisters. It wasn't just a, a kind of little form of um, people, bystanders or whatever. No, it was the top religious people. So he, and, and, and he, he, I mean, Paul isn't a child, you know. So can you imagine what happened? He had Contact with um, Sanhedrin for more than 20 years. That's his testimony after all. The high priest may not have been wearing his uh, official robes on this occasion. You know, another explanation. I give it to you all, you know, you explain it away. Since he was not ministering, the, I mean the high priest in the temple and in view of the fact that 
the meeting had been called by Claudius Lysias may not have been him, him presiding. Now, whatever the reason, you know, one of <clears throat> my leaders once said, big damage done, big damage, a heavy load, big damage done. It's hard for me to find words when Paul became aware of the damage he did. I think it took him apart. In a heated moment, Paul had said the wrong thing to the wrong person, lost his opportunity to receive a fair trial, and most importantly, blown his chance to explain the gospel. Wow. Can you imagine the situation? As a result, the situation turns ugly, and Paul now has to think fast just to get out alive. So we read in Acts 23, 6, so perceiving that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee and son of Pharisees. I'm on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead, you know. So he just cut them into two parts. You know, he was bright. He knew what he was doing. It was done purposely. So he put himself one-sided to the Pharisee side because he himself was, and they knew it, that he was a Pharisee. This I would call a strategic statement. You know, in, in soccer... You foul, and they call it a strategic foul. You don't kick him, um, you know, and kill him, but it's a strategy. You want to, you know, do something through what you are doing, strategic. Do you know the kind of things we do, strategic? This strategic statement, of course, polarizes the council, and for a moment, it, it kind of takes the heat off of the situation. And there, of course, because of the statement, there a dissension between the two groups came about, with the Sadducees shouting that there is no such thing as resurrection. We explained it already. And the Pharisees demanding that there certainly is, and we read in Acts 23, 9 to 10, there arose a great uproar. And some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Of course, he put himself on, on their side. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as 
a great dissension was developing. That's what we read in Acts 23. The commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by forces and bring him into the barracks. Once again, the commander intervened and saved Paul's skin, something at which he was becoming an expert. He had hoped for a resolution in this case, but only received more fireworks from the volatile Jews. And, um, but it didn't solve, I'm afraid, it didn't solve the tensions that may have occurred in Paul. And I love this passage. I love it. Because, you know, we see God in control. He's in control. He knows us, our failures, our experience, God is in control. Let's say it together, please. God is in control. If you take anything from this morning, take this. God is in control. We see it happening now. Here, the Lord is with Paul. Back in prison, Paul sits alone, covered in guilts of ashes. Instead of bravely carrying the torch of Christ to his former peers, he had overpowered the gospel message with his own explosive anger. Having let down his Lord so badly, how could he go on? Have you ever experienced something like that? It is then, amazingly, and really not surprisingly, because this is where God meets us. Oftentimes, it's not up in the mountains. It's in the valleys that God meets us. It is then, at just at the right moment, that the Lord comes to him. And in Acts 23, 11, we read, But on the night, immediately following, immediately, it said purposely, immediately. There wasn't any time because Paul was rock bottom. He was at the end of his, with his, all his emotions. He had failed, completely failed. And he was aware of it. So he needed the presence, the very presence of God himself. And we read it. You know, this is happening. What did we say? God. God is in control. He is indeed. Brother and sister, wherever you find yourself this morning, God is in control. So here we read God saying to him, Take courage, for as you have, as you have. God is the perfect psychologist. I like this. As you have. So he does something that we do really in crisis intervention. 
You know, there's nothing new under the sun as God cares for his people. You know how he does it? He makes us aware that we succeeded. That we had done it. Perfectly done it as his will is. And he says to him, take courage for as you have. You've done it. It's not that you, you know, that was possibly in, in, in Paul's mind, I've, I'm a complete failure. And that's, you know, dawning on our emotions when we fail once. And I don't know you, but myself, you know, if I fail once, I often think I'm a complete failure. That's it. You know, out, finished. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. What? That must be an incredible encouragement for Paul. You will do it. Mind you, yes. I mean, you know, as the theologians, the human theologian, try to explain things away, God doesn't. Yes? But he doesn't point fingers. He doesn't go into the wound and makes, makes the things even more hurting. No, he, he's not doing that. God is in control. With that cool breeze of grace, Jesus blew away the stagnant memories of Paul's failure. Wow. This is why I like this moment. It's so special. God caring for his servant. And he does it with you and me. God is in control. What a boost that must have been for Paul. How invigorated he must have felt. He was forgiven. Restored. <clears throat> and ready to meet any other difficulty to come. Only the grace of God can carve a roadway of peace through a person's wilderness of guilt, course a river of joy through the desert of despair. <coughs> what a blessing that is. And I want to remind you, because that can happen right after we get out of this building, you know. Disaster may happen, but God is. Please, put it deep in your heart. Take it with you. God is in control. So, we read in Isaiah 43, to do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Isaiah 43, 15, 16. Isaiah 43 is... You know, um, a masterpiece of God's care. It says here, I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's Creator. 
your king. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters. Isaiah 43, 18 and 19. Forget the former things. Yes, you've blown it. This is why you need to forget it. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and the streams in the wastelands. Paul awakens the next day feeling confident and totally refreshed. Can you appreciate Paul's recovery? It was amazing because he met the Lord in person. The Jews, however, awake, determined to take revenge. What a, you know, a tension between the situation at peace, completely at peace with Paul and the Jews, you know, they kind of were boiling. And then, of course, what happens because God is in control, the Jews, they were among themselves. When, when daybreak uh, comes, a group of more than 40 Jews plot to take Paul's life, conspiring with the chief priest and elders themselves and saying, again, God is in control, my brothers and sisters. We see it here in Acts 23, 14, 15. We say, we have bound us ourselves under the solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by more thorough investigation and for our part are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. Again, Paul's life is in danger, in incredible danger. This time, however, God is not only going to use the mighty Romans to protect his apostle, he plans to use an unlikely listener, an eavesdropper uh, uh, as well, Paul and the Romans. The conspirators think their plan is secret, but God is in control. We see it again, you know. We are kind of, it's kind of a surprise, but he's in control of the details. Isn't that amazing? Acts 23, 16, 18, we read, The son of Paul's sister heard of the ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report <laughs> to him. It's amazing, you know. It's kind of mind-boggling and mind-blowing, you know, things get together, all these different little pieces um, get together. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead his young man to you since he has something to tell you. Repeating the blood scheme by scheme, Paul's nephew is then released with the admonition to keep his conversation with a commander confidential. It's amazing. You know, it's kind of my, uh, it takes my breath away 
how God puts these details in place. The commander, we read in Acts 23:90-23, the commander took the young man by the wind, drew him aside, and asked, What is you one that you want to tell me? He said, Some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Do not give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now waiting for your consent to the request. The commander dismissed the young man with his warning, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. It is amazing how God pulled off Paul's deliverance. It is breathtaking to say the least. Just think about all that had to occur. It's a miracle, really. The otherwise unknown nephew, nobody knew him. You know, a nobody just turns up, just happened to overhear the blood. A nobody. Secondly, he somehow entered the heavily guarded barracks to tell to Paul. Also, a second miracle. Thirdly, a centurion was willing to take him to the commander. It's impossible. A nobody going to the commander. And fourthly, the busy commander listened to him right away and believed him. I mean, can you see the miracles happening here before Paul's eye? I mean, he must have seen God's hand in his life. Then, fifthly, then the commander ordered a small army to escort Paul out of town under cover of darkness. When God makes a promise, he keeps it in grand style. God is in control. Now, you know, um, some eyes are getting heavy. I can see that. This is why I want to make an application to make long things last finish. And uh, what is the application for us today? Because, I mean, you'd like to go with that message back into your home in your battle of life, don't you? Because this is why we are here. I mean, it's a training, I, I always call it a training session. We are trained for daily life, for the battles of life, when the battles mount up. As Paul rode out of Jerusalem more like a king than a prisoner, he must have been marveling at God's extravagant grace and power. All of us who struggle to keep calm under pressure, who tire of waiting and who feel hatreds burning coals within the need to remember those two words. For they teach at last, at least, two truths. First, the grace of God can overshadow any guilt within us. Again, because it's important. 
the grace of God can overshadow any guilt within us. And secondly, the power of God can overcome any plot against us. These are the two facts that we just learned. My fellow brothers and sisters, are you wandering in a wilderness of guilt right now? Are you lost in a desert of despair? May I encourage you to find today at the cool springs of God's grace and power. Imagine Paul in his prison cell after his angry outburst in the Sanhedrin council chamber, leaning in his, his back against the wall. He sits, or, um, legs drawn up and his head resting on his forearm. Devastated. Devastated. He is exhausted but cannot sleep because of the guilt that whips him as hard as any scorching would do. Would you believe it? <clears throat> I mean, this is probably going in his mind. I had once in a lifetime opportunity to preach the gospel to the highest Jewish officials in the world, and I blew it. How stupid I was to lose my temper. The great apostle, hardly. The great failure is more likely. Have you ever felt like this? A moment in time, remember, when you felt last like this. Are you lashing yourself right now because you spoiled a ripe opportunity to share Christ with somebody important in your life? What is your situation? Paul may have thought that the Lord Jesus Christ would be angry with him, but what an example of grace did he receive instead? You know, he blew up and he said, well, God is killing you. But God turns on him his grace. And his grace is sufficient. Acts 23, 11 says again, The Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. That was the perspective. You will go to Rome. It's not the end. It's just the start. While Paul saw this, just his failure, Jesus only saw his success. This is the Lord Jesus. If that is not grace, what else is then to be gracious? This is grace in person. This is the Lord Jesus standing in front of you and me. Gracious as he can be. You must have been amazed at Jesus' words, particularly this line, you have solemnly witnessed to my, my course at Jerusalem. While Paul saw just his failure, Jesus only saw the success. If Christ were to stand beside you in your prison of guilt, what do you think he would say to impart glare to you? Do you need some help 
getting started, let's read the Bible. Because that's the textbook of encouragement, isn't it? And we turn to um, Psalm 103 and we read it. Because it's so important. You know, to be reminded again and again, there's nothing else we, we can tell others than reading the Bible and especially the Psalms that are of great encouragement to us to know God's presence, that He is with us. So in Psalm 103, we read, Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise His holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Who, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his way to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as for our sins, deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as he is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. What is your relationship? Again, we need to apply this. What is your relationship with the Lord? Do you feel like a slave or like a child? Would you say that you relate to God more as a servant to his master than a child to her father? Do you think of yourself more in a servant-master relationship? How would changing your perspective to that of the child-father relationship lessen your fears and frustrations and help you to live in, within God's grace? That is the question. God's grace is abound. This is why we read in Galatians, you know, the, this kind of fight between uh, law and grace. It was very big, and I would like to finish with that. Galatians 4, 4 to 7 reads, But when he said, when the said time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to read deem those under the law that he might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his sons into our heart. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. May this 
revive you. May this encourage you and remind you when problems surmount your view that God is in control. Amen. Lord Jesus, we just want to thank you again for this great reminder. You are with us. Thank you that you keep your promises. Even if disaster occurs, you're with us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you made us your son and daughters. And with that, you brought hope into our hearts. Even when we fail, you're standing with us. Thank you for this great historical story that we could read from your servant Paul. Having failed, but you sustained him. You stood with him. You spoke to him. Your mouth was open and you encouraged. Thank you that you still are the same God. You do not change. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that if we go through failure, that you may remind us that you're with us. Thank you for your presence this morning. Thank you for all our brothers all around the globe. They may listen or may listen later that you bless them abundantly together with us as we enter again into a race to follow you so that we may finish well to the glory of God, our Savior. We pray. Amen.